0: What kind of grandmother will be so close to her her grandson, Harry, but then not use her power and influence as queen to protect them from the racist media coverage? What kind of grandmother will protect her own son Prince Andrew from the potential crime of raping a minor, but would do all to protect Harry and Meghan, especially, I have no doubt that she
1: would have heard about the suicidal thoughts and the help and support she needs. And then you sit there, how on about how the royal institution is not racist. Are you out of your God forsaking mind? Uh-huh.
0: I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the podcast celebrating giant women everywhere. What do you think about giant women?
2: Uh, that's one of the things that uh, the, the masked man in The Princess Bride... Wishes for Andre the Giant, dream of large women Interesting
0: that you bring up the Princess Bride We do have a royal conversation to have today See? <laughs> yeah. Celebrating uh, giant women, both proverbially talking about you know women with big voices And really using their platforms, however you want to um, uh, describe that, uh, define that But also in the fantastical sense I'm mm-hmm. going to talk a little bit about music from a show called Steven Universe A woman-powered show uh, called Steven Universe So a little bit of that that. Happy International Women's Day, by Today, the way, Scott. As we record, as we record. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this ninety-first opus of the Triloquy Podcast. To the returning listeners, thank you so much for coming back. We're coming up on one hundred opuses, and many of you, by the by the by the numbers that I see, about six hundred of you have been here from the beginning, and. I think that's cool. Wow! To uh, the newcomers and the new comers, thank you so much for joining us. This is a podcast where we take music that we consider classical, throw it outside of the concert hall into the streets, and really and really try to connect it all. I I, I love doing this every week. How about you, Scott?
2: Our streets ain't done. <laughs> yeah.
0: A man, a, man. <laughs> a Support for this 91st opus of Triloquy comes from Unclassified. Unclassified curates fresh classical music playlists for moments and themes, including women of classical, hues of music, black voices, classical pride, and more. Follow them at Unclassified HQ on social media and discover more at unclassified.com. You're at unclassified.com right now, Scott.
2: I've just been cruising around through some of these playlists, classical pop, is on there as well. Um, Classical Pride, Women in Classical is another one. So that's uh, very appropriate. What's in
0: that classical pop playlist?
2: Hang on, hang on. I'm looking down through uh, Vitamin String Quartet playing Blinding Lights. We got Mary Beezer, is it? Oh, Maya Beezer. I'll have to tell you my Maya Beezer. Well, I'm looking through my progressive lenses (laughs) and I don't know where to (laughs) tilt my head to get the right focus. There it
0: is. So lots of really incredible stuff on these unclassified playlists. So definitely Dolly go Parton? check that out. Oh yeah. It's it's you know one one of the classical composers of the of Appalachia. Okay. <laughs> no, this is cool. Yeah, I like so, this. So go check it out at unclassified.com. Big shout out to everyone over there at unclassified for supporting Triloquy. The downbeat for today comes from Dr. Shola Mas Shagbamimu. Uh, From over in uh, the UK, I'm hoping, I I really hope I pronounced um, your name correctly. Me too. I stayed up really late last night and uh, waited for all of the UK people to wake up (laughs) (laughs) to see what they had to say. And I heard uh, the whole uh, Pierce Morgan thing live through somebody's phone on Clubhouse and uh, Dr. uh, Shogbamimu was tearing him up. Did you see that? Did you see that clip? Nope. Well, the, the the people heard it in the downbeat. There, <laughs> got them together. I actually did not. I I live in my own little bubble. I guess I had never heard of Pierce Morgan, but he seems really? yeah. But he seems like a UK Fox Newsy
2: sort of person. He That's was, what I was. He getting. was he was on one of the cable news networks over here for a while. Oh, really? Yeah, and they they ran him out. the the The, the viewers <laughs> had enough. They
0: ran him all the way over to England. All the way back to where he came from. <laughs> so a huge shout out to uh, Doctor Sholamashog Bamimu for saying so much. Much to the circumstance at hand, it, it has to be. Uh, how can I say? Uh, the, the word that comes to my mouth is challenging. I, I don't mean to say that, but it, it just it takes so much courage, I'm sure, in England to get on national TV and to speak against the actual Queen. I can I can't, I can't imagine.
2: You're talking about hundreds of years of heritage. That yeah, over a thousand years. They're just
0: blowing up and she's one of the black women out here one of the many black women tearing all this shit down and and we appreciate her and, for it. What,
2: and also you know harry threw a little shade too you know when when he was given some of his answers well, you know We'll, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll right get into on. it. it. <laughs> uh, Dr. Shobamimu, I, I'll also uh,
0: note is the author of a book called This Is Why I Resist. I'm going to get my copy, and I'll have a link um, to that in the description of this opus. Um, did you talk about the music uh, that you were going to bring in today already? Psalm 1 yeah.
2: is the artist, uh, Twin Cities artist, but she is originally from Chicago. I do not know her pronouns, but I have seen other pieces where they refer to her as her, so I'm I'm going to go in that direction, but um, Psalm One is not only my accidental, but also my music choice for this week. Yeah, for the
0: second movement, looking forward to that. In the third movement, today's featured guest is Courtney Bryan, the newly appointed Louisiana Philharmonic creative partner. We're going to talk about uh, a creative partnership with the Louisiana Philharmonic uh, as far as reaching out into the community and creating music and experiences that really speak uh, to those people. We're going to talk a little bit about Courtney uh, Bryan's music. Um, Courtney is a, uh, an alum of Oberlin So she actually offers a response To oh. everything we were talking about last <laughs> week So, <laughs> And we also have uh, Some responses I suppose To get to in the first movement So we'll get to that But just very quickly um, I want to uh, send a huge shout out And congratulations to Dr. Christine Gengelhoff uh, Former Triloquy guest Along with Ms. Kathleen Legrand On uh, their new book uh, Tour de Force uh, A survey of the classical music So-called classical music of the Bahamas and uh, mm. and the Caribbean, uh, I took part in that book release virtually that took place down in the Bahamas last week. Um, I'm I'm so proud that there are so many people, so many women uh, specifically leading the charge and uh, helping us decolonize the way we look at music history, the way we contextualize the, the word classical music. So mm. down there in the Bahamas and across the Caribbean, they now have a text that affirms their aesthetics and their traditions mm. as classical. It's an exciting time, nice. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. All right, let's uh, get into movement one. Scott, remember that song? I I forget the name of the band, but it was too late to apologize. It's I don't. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll put it in under there. I, I forget the name of that band. I feel so. but anyway, um, I'm thinking about that tune because uh, the folks down at TMEA. Had an apology, so Scott, will, will you uh, for, for folks who weren't with us last week or maybe the week before last, bring them up to speed as far as uh, what was going on down at TMEA?
2: There was uh, a slide from a presentation that broke down how to identify a promising. Uh, what was it specifically? Bassoon? Was that just? Yeah, the I think example? it was specifically
0: bassoon. Yeah.
2: Okay, so how to identify a good prospective uh, bassoonist? You know, like by looking at whether they rent, if their family rents or owns the home. um, Does the family move a lot? Basically.
0: Has has the child had experiences? Privacy, right. Yeah, but playing individual sports like golf and swimming, you know, all of those cheap sports that it doesn't cost anything to play, right? So a gauge of
2: affluence, maybe?
0: (laughs) So uh, the internet was upset, to say the least. You know how the children are? Mm -hmm. We will get on the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the the person who put this out, uh, Frank Wallace down there in Texas, Uh, put out an apology for all of the problematic issues in that presentation. I'll read a little bit of the opening here. It says, Dear Friends and Music Colleagues, I owe an apology to more people than I can imagine. My presentation on February 12, 12, 2021 at TMEA on identifying beginning bassoon candidates was rooted in guidelines that exclude a diverse range of students. I now recognize the harm I have inflicted. I was wrong and I apologize. I'll link the rest of this in the description. It's a long apology. It's exhaustive. It goes through every point, every little thing that uh, he did wrong and that he wants uh, correction on. He even puts his email in the apology saying, look, reach out to me. Help me get myself together. What did you think of this apology? We we see a lot of the the tweet apologies. My bad. I'm sorry if I made y'all feel a certain way. This one feels more genuine than some of the ones I've seen, I'll say.
2: Well, because isn't it? Isn't it following along with some of the um, the breakdowns of initiatives, and also when we were talking about uh, a love supreme, you know, of all the different, you know, you need to recognize the problem, yeah, and then you need to uh, resolve to fix it, persevere on the path. So um, that looks like a good apology, but. I have to emphasize that I've been not in Frank Miller's shoes, but close to that Frank situ- Wallace. Is it uh, Frank? Okay, then yeah. Frank Miller. Yeah, Frank. Wa- I've I've been close to that situation, although not as as deep sure. of shit that he's in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's it's just going to suck to be Frank Wallace for a while. Yeah, and and I think that you know it, it looks like he's ready to take the lumps and. You know, in in a number of months And that's a but he'll that's, be able to
0: he'll be able to lift his head back up and But that's actually a part of the conversation. How do we measure accountability when it take mm-hmm. when when it comes to these sorts of things? Because at the end of the day, his career is likely going to be fine. Not that I want this man to be ruined, you know, his career to be over. Mm-hmm. But he he's he's not gonna miss a beat more more than more than likely, you say this apology or or whatever, and it's just going to move on. How do you think we measure that accountability? how 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 do we know? you know how could how could you have trust enough to send a black mother's child to him? what do you what would you need to see?
2: I'm not sure what yeah, I would need to
0: see, actually, yeah, I
2: was just about to say that that's a great question, but I mean it's 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 going to be a while before. A parent feels that way, right? 10 to 15 or, years. Or at least a, 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 <laughs> a, a person of color, a student of color. Sure, sure.
0: Well, um, warm thoughts to Frank Wallace, Nim.
2: Uh, again, like I said, I'll post the apology in the description. Again, I'm going to say the same thing that I said about Oberlin. I'll throw the bail and go, yeah, it looks like, it, it looks like um, a, a solid apology. And I say again, it's just going to suck to be Frank Wallace for a little while. Absolutely. Well... In
0: honor of uh, Women's History Month and International Women's Day, we have a little bassoon music, some woman-powered bassoon music to transition us here. I went to the internet and uh, found myself in the catalog of Libby Larson. I'm sure you know the uh, yeah, her name, yeah. Libby Larson. Uh, originally, I don't know if she's originally from Minnesota, but strong Minnesota connections, um, along with the late Stephen Paulus, was, uh, were the co-founders of the American Composers Forum, the then Minnesota right, Composers right, Forum, now right, American. Right, okay, anyway, okay. so Libby Larson has written all sorts of really uh, incredible music, a lot for bands, which I always appreciate, but the tune of Hers that I want to share today is called "Jazz Variations for Solo Bassoon." This performance of it uh, comes from uh, Kayla Bellamy. So here's a little of that to get us to our next accidental. That apology gets a natural, by the way, just putting a natural beside that because naturally we're going we're gonna to see what comes of it.
2: It looks positive to me, but I want to put a natural next to an error that I made in this uh, second movement last week, Mm -hmm. last opus. I said the composer for Elegy for Innocence was Monica Ellis, the bassoonist Mm -hmm. on the track. That was actually written by Jeffrey Scott. Right. Um, That was unintentional. So again, but Jeffrey Scott, great composition. And I stand by my previous comment that Monica really brings out all the all the different colors on the palette. She bodied it. She did. And to my credit, even you admitted that Spotify made it look like Monica composed that in the way that it showed up on the playlist. Yeah, one of these
0: days we'll have to have the conversation of Spotify and how it it doesn't, or all of the DSPs doesn't actually credit the composer as Mm. it should. There's Mm. a setting in Apple Music for you to go in and find the composer. But anyway, um, shout out to Jeff Scott. I know I kind of... Sent some spicy words last week to Mr. Scott on yeah. the Triloquy. Um, all, all, as I said, all respect, you know. And, sure. But we're, we're not going to backtrack, but, but, but thank you uh, for that natural. So um, my, my last accidental here for, uh, for this week, I'm going to put a sharp next to the interview that Oprah did with <laughs> Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. First and foremost, shout out to Oprah. For a, an interview that you just do, for you to just sit down and have a conversation with someone, and it becomes global news. Oprah is one of those interview legends. She's isn't the big,
2: she? she's the big game hunter of of interviewers. I Absolutely. Mean,
0: started started you know with but even before the Oprah show, you know the journalism and stuff she would do, and then the Oprah talk show, and you know how just sticking to your guns and um you know. Becoming that giant woman again—we'll get to that later in this mm-hmm. uh, opus. How it's—it's it's really possible if you just stick with it. When I—when I look at Oprah's uh, career, as far as interviews and conversations, it—it it, it inspires me. It makes me think, wow, if I just really stick with this, who knows what could be happening in twenty. Thirty years, you know.
2: So. She went through a a time where she had to do the work she really didn't want to do. Right, you know, there was a lot of stuff that she had to wade through to get to where she is now.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But goodness gracious, look at is, is, is
0: she is she not a giant woman? What can Oprah, What do you think Oprah can't buy? I'm, like, like, what, 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 like, we would have to start talking about spaceships and stuff, right? That's um, what she came by, <laughs> right? I
2: don't know. Maybe, maybe she'll be, maybe she'll be the first woman on Mars. Who knows?
0: <laughs> Could be hell. Um, so, anyway, huge shout out to Oprah. Look, okay. So, for people who don't know, maybe, maybe you are sleeping under your tea and crumpets. But uh, in the in the past twenty four hours, uh, Oprah has interviewed Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, and they have both basically said that. The royal palace is racist as fuck, mm-hmm. and we out of there. So first and foremost, Scott, are you surprised? Was this did it shock you to to think that there might be racism in in an institution that's twelve hundred years old and is behind the colonization of the entire earth? I think there's a uh, there's a statistic out there or something that says there are only twenty two countries in the world that have not been touched by the British Empire. Right. You know?
2: Right. Um, so, of course, there's no some racism. No, I wasn't. I wasn't really all that surprised. Isn't there isn't there some countries that they still claim <laughs> uh, rule over?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about the um, we were talking about the well we we're talking about the Caribbean. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dr. Uh, Gengelhoff, uh, Christine. Them. Yeah. A lot of those countries are still English colonies. The Bahamas themselves, when I was there teaching, they had uh, just they were celebrating their 40th Independence, but there's so much about Great Britain that is still embedded there. Uh, we've talked about their notation system, crotchets mm. and semibreves and stuff. Mm. They drive on the left side of the road. Even when it comes to um, what they call oh, I forget what they call it, like not licensure, but um, b- basically a series of tests in every subject, right, including right, music, right. very much like in like English your O levels or whatever. Right, exactly. So it, it's it's very much there, and you know what was interesting to me. A point that Meghan Markle made that I did not think about was that most of the people in the Commonwealth are black. So it, it is a it would be a benefit for the royal palace to have a person of color in there, mm-hmm. considering that all across the globe there are people of color under this British rule, but they just... They just wasn't trying to have it. To
2: answer your question, I I wasn't that surprised, but that's only because I've been hosting this podcast with you for the last two years. Mm -hmm. But also my guitar teacher that I used to study with, now we just kind of hang out socially. He's British. He recently got his American citizenship, and he was telling me stories years ago about this sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. I was getting sort of the inside scoop. He confided in me once that as a child he had a gollywog. So, uh, you know, as a toy. And he's mortified by it now. He's, right. You know, he sees all of these things, but he was telling, he was cluing me into some of these things years ago when I was studying with him. I'm going to read a little bit. I'm I'm at uh, Revolt.tv
0: and the article is titled, Meghan Markle says royal family had concerns about how dark her son's skin would be from that article. In those months, this is Meghan Markle talking, in those months where I was pregnant, all around this same time, so we were having in tandem the conversations of our son won't be given security, he's not going to be given a title, and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. Now, uh, Prince Harry did not say who it was, and Updates he has said who it wasn't he talked about okay, don't y'all be talking about it's the queen of England yeah, he it said wasn't he, was, her. he said he was never going to relate that story, didn't he well, he said he would never tell who said that uh. I think I think he was his brother, I think it was his brother wasn't
2: wasn't that one that got off the hook it wasn't his brother or mother no, I thought he said his grandmother or uh that that's it wasn't the grandmother right.
0: or or it wasn't the grandmother husband uh- Anyway, you know, we don't know about the royal family. Anyway, he did not say who it was, but think about Meghan Markle's skin complexion. Let's just go there. Think about Meghan Markle's skin complexion. Think about Harry's white ass. And their so what so what color could their child be? You know, they don't they don't want the child to be a little bit tan, a little bit french vanilla. You know, any just. And so imagine if they had a dark skin, somebody my complexion up in there, they'd have yeah, had a fit. The firm, right? as they said, would mm-hmm. have had a fit. Mm-hmm. And, well, you know, you we, when we when we talk about this, of course, I'm thinking about conversations of colorism. I'm thinking about classism. I'm not trying to hipster conversations about the royal family, but I will say that the idea of lauding over this monarchy was always strange to me. Anytime there was a royal wedding and folks over here, especially, were guffawing. I was like, "What? Like, what are y'all talking about?" Mm-hmm. And then during the Meghan Markle um, wedding ceremony, you know, uh, years ago, a couple of years ago, all of these people just acting like, "Oh, look at what this black woman has." Um, achieved, you know, a member of the royal family. I thought all of that was problematic from the go, and you know, here we are. They're they're over here in the United States, off of England's dime, because they just don't want to support some blanker lover.
2: Well, it's 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 only been since what the early 1900s that they operated as the the uh, as Parliament being the major uh, governing body, right? Yeah. Okay, so. Can you imagine how you would feel if you were born into that structure? If you were born into that regimented, everything has to appear a certain way so that it reflects well on the firm, Mm -hmm. the institution, whatever you want. That sounds like jail to me, To, to have to, yeah, but what a jail. You know, but, right, the, but, right. But why would you want to live that way where everything that you do is under a microscope that way? And that's something that people have been trying to unpack in the interview where Prince Harry
0: was talking about how he felt trapped, how, you know, when he realized... I would imagine ...the, he does. the reality of it. And that's actually what, you know, I wanted to get your feedback on. You often talk about in this work, in this anti-racism work, in this content creation, coming upon certain realizations that are a little frightening. It's scary right. to think about how insane right Some of this stuff is. I'm sure at one point Harry was like, wow, this palace is racist as fuck right you know I mean can can, can you speak to the feeling of what you know to be true, your whole reality, being shattered because you have realized how problematic it is
2: sure. foundationally. Well, it's happened a couple of times. And you remember one night when the riots were going on last mm-hmm. year and you came in to relieve me. And I sat there like I was in shell shock just because I had my bell rung about uh, my my complicity yeah. in much of this career. And, you know, and I, I'm dealing with that. At my own pace, right. uh, but but it's still going on, Frank Wallace. Hey, welcome to the path, man. You're on it, and you're going to be walking it for from now on.
0: Yeah, when when Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and them came over here with with nowhere to go, no security or anything. You know who house they went to? Did you read that? No.
2: Tyler Perry. Oh, that's right. That's right. He Ma- did come Ma- back Madea into. was it. at the front door with a
0: pistol <laughs> saying, "Come up in here if you want to." No, I'm just playing. <laughs> but that's what I thought of when I heard that. <laughs> yeah. Um there you know and so bringing this to the arts, bringing this to uh, e- even, you know, big C classical music, uh, Western European stuff. Rafe Vaughan Williams and other folks wrote lots of pieces in honor of Queen Elizabeth II, you know, then princess in the in the time that this music was being written. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I think about the context of this and what Queen Elizabeth could have done, I'm always going to hear those pieces of music and think about the racism therein, you know, mm. and then further beyond that. If we're talking about the racism in the royal palace, we have to talk about the racism in the royal um, Albert Hall and the royal philharmonic, you know, what i'm thinking about now is how everything with that word royal in front of it everything with some sort of attachment to the firm you know yeah. uh musical organizations and 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 so on you know that that that's something that has to be considered even at new years i think we were talking about how they kept their uh their new years uh, for their New Year's concert, they kept the national anthem on there, talking about Britain's right. never, never, never will be slaves. Right. You know, this this brilliant prose that these English people have have just saved and, and cherished for all these years. Right. I, could, I, could, I could go on and drag that for a long time. But anyway, um, I'll, I'll have a little bit more for Queen Elizabeth and the Triloquy and the Fourth Movement.
2: I would only point out how Prince Andrew kind of got a pass. He was, you know, connected to Epstein.
0: Oh what! Oh, see, I didn't. Oh, shoot! They sure. Did. I think that was mentioned.
2: I forgot about that. So he, so ju- he's
0: he is committing sexual assault.
2: But they, they, they just kind of
0: brush him to put, the side. Right?
2: They they took away his website and, and but, all as,
0: that. but as soon but. as Harry gets with Meghan Markle, you know, you, you you see how how racism when when we talk about um, you know the, these so called oppression Olympics, and I think it's a really interesting conversation, especially during Women's History Month. Gender equity is important. I think from the history of the world, we have seen uh, the cultural oppression of mm-hmm. women. In modern society, to me, it seems like racism takes that front seat. And of course, black women, women of color, get it even worse than right. the rest of it. But you see what they won't allow, you know, what, what, where they will draw the line? They, they will draw the line at right. race,
2: Right. period. And male, and male, yeah. You know, it's a it's a man, Prince Andrew. Oh right, oh right. Oh,
0: oh, of course, right, right, right. And I don't know. I, I think back to the Princess Diana stuff and how they did her and yeah, that was sad. So um, warm thoughts to um, Meghan Markle and uh, Prince Harry. Prince Harry is I. Right. I'll just say that. <laughs> and I don't give a lot of white trophies, but Prince Harry is I. Right. Uh,
2: <laughs> we get a B out of there.
0: Um, in continued celebration of Women's History Month and today, International uh, Women's Day, I wanted to make sure to find a black Afro-English composer to celebrate Um, and the composer that I wanted to bring in um, her name is Hannah Kendall. I learned of her um, at uh, my previous radio job. I'm sure you've seen her name uh, Coming across the playlist Uh, the piece of hers. I want to bring in is called a winged spirit When I think about what Meghan Markle has gone through when I think about um, What all of the women whose names we will never know what they have gone through that winged spirit, that spirit of overcoming, flying above for the women who are able to do that, it is so incredible. And you know, it's it's just it's an experience that that neither of us and most men will will ever be able to speak to. Mm-hmm. Being under that pressure as a black person, as a a black woman, a woman of color, being disrespected on top of the uh, years and years and years of oppression, and um, I it's it's where it's where i take a a step back and humble myself because as much as i rail about racial equity i understand that the intersection of racial equity when it comes to gender equity is even more oppressive and, um, and, and I'm glad to be able to, um, you know, use a platform to speak to it and also to share uh, some of the beautiful music by the uh, black woman over there fighting the good fight again, these stories that we will never know. So here's a little bit of a composition called Winged Spirit music by Afro-English composer Hannah Kendall.
2: I'm going to take you uh, on down a similar road about women being put upon in the entertainment business mm-hmm. uh, right here in the Twin Cities for an artist uh, Psalm 1 she is from a uh, she's from Chicago and she was signed onto to rhymesayers here in the Twin Cities mm-hmm. and she moved to the Twin Cities believing that she was going to be part of that Uh, gang, part of that community, you know, doing shows and recording and projects that were all associated to the Rhymesayers label. Um, She got here that didn't materialize. She ended up having to couch surf around. Now, I'm not going to tell her story, but the the link to her uh, most recent uh, writing is uh, on the the description page, but she wrote a piece in Medium at the beginning of December last year, calling out Rhymesayers for how they did her wrong on several steps. Yeah. That includes um, the cold shoulder. Uh, Once she moved here, they sort of uh, turned their back on her and said, you know, we're going to go a different direction and saddled her with the debt for the production costs, like $2,500 or something like that. Um, Concerts being given where the whole Rhyme Sears crew was out there and she was not included. You know, like I said, I'm just now finding out how the Twin Cities music scene is sort of having its own mini Me Too reckoning. Yeah, And and, uh, Psalm 1 was part of the victim of that. And one of the things that struck me about the Medium article that I wanted to talk with you about, to me, it looks like she's naming these things. And you often talk about how it's important to name the situation, the oppressor or whatever. Can you... Talk about that in more detail, just for those who might not know that concept of naming your issue.
0: Yeah, I'll take us back to—I forget if we actually used the clip in the Opus of Triloquy, but back to Nikki Giovanni talking about um, the power, you know, what their generation brought was to say, hey, I don't like white people. I think when we talk about things like that for so long, you know, black folks, women, were not allowed to even name the patriarchy. A black woman could not— claim someone was being handsy with her, because even in doing that, she was in danger. So when we talk about naming the issue, there's power behind just affirming that, yes, there is an issue. Yes, there is someone oppressing me. Yes, there is something Mm -hmm. being done. And I think sometimes we take for granted, especially when it comes to women, that there is danger behind naming that. So even coming out and and saying
2: what the issue is takes so much courage. That's what I'm getting at, is she really... breaks down all the different angles that she was up against. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, another interesting thing that she was doing in this article that I wanted to bring up, forgiving herself. Right? She would say, I forgive myself for allowing this situation to happen, or I forgive myself for not seeing this as it was in the time. Say, get, tell, talk to me about that piece. Well, about let, me, the, let, the fr- me,
0: let me read a little bit uh, from the article. So uh, Psalm 1 is speaking within the context of hip-hop. She says, My seat at their table was the culmination of my blood, sweat, and tears. I was showing up and rapping my ass off. I was holding up my end of the bargain. I forgive myself for being so naive, for thinking they could somehow see me as more than my gender. So in the context of hip-hop, the woman who is rapping is still even to this day sort of seen as the novelty, sort of the, right. you know, that that other thing. And we forget that these women are actual artists, are actual rappers, and are having to traverse that level of novelty. I'm thinking, you know, back to the so-called classical music, the novelty of the spiritual on the concert, or this mm. this mm-hmm. black-sounding thing. You know, it's so much more than that. And I uh, I think what she's speaking to again is forgiving herself for thinking that these power structures did not exist. You know, quickly going back to Meghan Markle, that's something that she was talking about in her interview with, with Oprah, um, you know, has, saying that if she had any regrets, it was believing that they would protect her. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think I'm, that that's what she said verbatim. So when I read this by Psalm 1, um, it, it, it reminds me of that that same thing. And and I, I personalize that as well. Uh, taking a step back and saying hey it is okay that you are wrong about trusting these people or thinking that these folks wouldn't do this mm-hmm. That that is a that is a very real thing and um I, I honor psalm 1 for for bringing that to the table that that's something more of us need to Sit with ourselves and, and learn to do, forgive ourselves for being wrong, being naive about how insidious, how racist, how misogynistic these
2: structures, these systems are. Not only does she step out in the writing, but also in her music. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I, I thought a lot today about how to describe it. And the only the thing that I came up with was when I listened to a Cardi B song or a Megan Thee Stallion yeah. song, I mean I, I understand what they're rapping about, but I don't identify with it. I don't know anybody living that like that. Mm-hmm. When I hear Psalm one, I hear somebody who might live down the street. Right. I hear somebody who is right here at my level struggling too, you know. Well, I mean our struggles are different, obviously. Right. What I'm saying is I hear her struggling in issues. That are all around me. You know, I, I identify more with what she's talking and about. And
0: even when it comes to the Megan the Stallions, the Nickys, the Cardi B's. Let's go even back further: Eve, uh, Lauren Hill, Foxy Brown. Who are some more of these women rappers? I'm not thinking about there. there there's a lot of them. Um, you know, when I think when I think about all these women in hip hop, you you talk about not you know really being able to speak to that experience or whatever. I think about all of the gay men mm-hmm. who heard you know their own struggles with these men and uh and and whatever else through that music and and was attracted to it you know that's why i honor women in hip-hop because sometimes i need to hear a song about how blanca's ain't shit mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. hard now maybe i should get used to saying the word ninja
3: so that I,
0: <laughs> how ninjas ain't shit you know sometimes you need that sometimes you know I we, we need to, we need that affirmation. So I'm sure for women and girls all around the world, you know, hearing that sort of music in the context of hip hop is really empowering. But um we, we should never forget what it costs for those women to really be on that platform. You know, again, speaking to the power structures, how uh, the patriarchy is sort of foundational to hip hop. I, I I almost feel bad for, for saying that to
2: an extent, but just acknowledging no, no, the
0: struggles that they have to get yes, over see, because they're women.
2: That's a, th- This is the tie-in to the royalty thing because it's a look behind the veneer or the facade. Because the Twin Cities music scene, when I arrived here almost fifteen years ago, mm-hmm. it seemed so supportive, it seems such a family sort of inclusive thing, um liberal you, right. know, you know all that right. sort of thing. But when you find out that that isn't the way, your heart kind of sinks a little bit your some your stomach gets queasy, yeah, when you realize. It ain't sweet. That's how I would say. It ain't sweet. Sure. That what you what you thought was what you thought a thing was is not in fact how it appears to be, and it breaks your heart.
0: So, what should be our response? For me, I think about okay, how can I actually support this person? So, Psalm one. Excuse me. Has um, music on Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. I have gone and and if you don't know, uh, for folks listening, if you don't know, uh, a lot of artists will put their music, you know, on this uh, website called Bandcamp. Bandcamp dot com. You can pay the suggested price for the song or just give offer money. more. Just mm-hmm. just give them money. So um, I've gone on to uh, Bandcamp and uh, bought music by Psalm One. I encourage you to as well. Um, you're gonna speak to a specific Psalm One uh, composition, but as we Uh, segue out of the first movement into the second movement. Is there a a, a pick you want to give us to warm us up?
2: Uh, She has plenty of tracks on Spotify, but let's put the spotlight on Beat the Drum, which has this nice little Latin feel to it as well.
0: Psalm One, bringing us into this second movement, where we're going to strike a chord. Talk about the music that moved us this week. Um, how about we stick with Psalm One uh, just for a little bit? You had one particular uh, composition by her that uh, you wanted to bring in. What was it about this specific
2: song that struck a chord with you this week? It's a track called "Anxious, Nervous, and Imperfect." Um, things that she just just off the top of my head, the things that she's talking about: STIs, mm-hmm. drug addiction. The the rhymesayers issue, all of these happening within just a few first few verses. But at the end of it, she says something that resonated so hard with me. There was a lyric that she repeated a few times at the end that I was feeling to my core I just need enough to go away
3: now. I just need
2: enough to go away
1: now. I
3: just need enough to go away. Now.
2: What does that line mean to you? I just need enough to go away.
0: It could go many ways. I just need enough weed to get through the day, to go away. I just need enough money to move away from this ghetto-ass United States of America, where where it's racism and all. It it could go many ways. And I think that's what's beautiful about this song. That's what's beautiful about music, the many ways that you can uh, relate it to your own story. Huge shout-out to Psalm 1. Thank you for uh, putting me on to her. Sure. Using different songs to speak to different experiences is what uh, this next group of composers has done really well. I want to send a huge uh, shout out to Ivy Tran, Rebecca Sugar, and Stephen Velima for writing uh, the first tune. I want to, uh, well, the tune I want to talk about uh, called "Giant Woman." So. Um, When I get into my um, animated show bag, (laughs) I know that it can be a little convoluted and confusing if you don't know what I'm talking about, so I'll keep this simple. Doe got me onto this show called Steven Universe. It's about gyms who are uh, personified as women. It's a very woman-driven show, a very queer-affirming show, but it's all within the package of kids. You mm. know, the fun songs, really um, excellently um, written music that speaks to so many things. I know
2: that you're watching it, but what's the target demographic? Probably,
0: it's hard to say because a lot of these cartoons the adults watch, I would say the target demographic is probably the nine-year-olds, nine to 12-year-olds. But, um, so first of all, uh, the creator of the show, Steven Universe, Rebecca Sugar, is the first woman to independently create a series for Cartoon Network and, and thinking about independent content creation. It has to be such a, an exciting thing to have a whole animated thing a podcast is one thing but to create an animated series to create that sort of content independently we're going to make it onto staff. that yeah that's that that's really huge um and and exciting uh one of the songs um that makes me think of you know the the power of that independence is one called independent together mm. it comes from the steven universe movie and scott when i think about you know independent together I think about my independence I think about what it could be like if you were independent and how the content that we create together how our fusions for people who watch the show could be really huge plus you know on on top of just the way it hits close to home just you know good music independent Independent together together,
1: you and I Independent independent together Independent Independent together, together, we can fly Independent together Independent together Independent together, you and I Independent together, you and I
0: So anyway, among the many incredible and affirming songs from this woman-powered content is called Giant Woman. In the show, the main character, Steven, wants two gems to fuse because he wants to see what they look like together. So he sings this song called uh, How He Wants to See a Giant Woman. Beyond the Fantasy of that and, and the Steven Universe universe of it all. When I hear the song, I think about us as men, Scott. And I think about how we can never know the the woman experience, but how we can, you know, do what we can to see women grow and see their impact grow and see their music or whatever. You know, I think about wanting to see a giant woman in that way and doing everything I can uh to to support that. What 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 comes to mind for you on on the topic of wanting to see a giant
2: woman, <laughs> other put, than other you, than the obvious, you put me on the spot, <laughs> and then I have to sit here and and.
0: I mean, has there never been a, a young woman that you are really rooting on, who you really want to see make it, who you really want to see people attra- attracted to their music or to their art, or you know, were you ever, were you never the cheerleader for someone?
2: When I first hear. Or anywhere Anywhere I, I can, When I first moved here and, and when I first heard Molly Mayer
0: Oh yeah oh, Shout I out was, to Molly I
2: was a huge fan of Molly Mayer And here in the Twin Cities She's guitar royalty Yeah Yeah So Do you think uh, um, Do, do you, I, I know that She, she doesn't um, need my help For promotion well, she know
0: got Molly is all into the uh, roots and stuff But do you think she could get into the rock Sort of It, it seems yeah. to me that she's yeah, she could Yeah She's she's done that too Yeah Shout yeah. out to Shout out to um, Molly
3: Mayer Are you blinded by love?
0: I like the idea of uh, men being the cheerleaders for women. I like the idea of women really taking the lead as they do in this show, Steven Universe and the production of it, really growing impact, really growing um, uh, influence. Mm. Like, like Stephen, I, too, want to see a giant woman.
1: giant woman
0: so before we get into my conversation with Courtney Bryan, I wanted to bring up one more giant woman, a woman named Alice Coltrane. She came up in our conversation, and I wanted to make sure uh, that the folks listening had some sort of context around who this was. So, have Had you ever heard the name Alice Coltrane or well, know much about her music?
2: I, not much about her music. I know she was married to John.
0: Yeah, she was married to John uh, Coltrane. She passed away back in 2007 and really led the way when it came to this fusion, of again, to use a Stephen U universe started this fusion of classical so-called classical of so-called jazz of experimental music um, very talented piano player um, a magical uh, harp player and one of those names that we we, we don't say um, often often enough um, one of the, the the piece of music that I wanted to bring in is called galaxy and Sachi danda so I let you hear a little bit of that mm-hmm. uh, before we start a recording you get some of that I, I hate this phrase but some of that' so called world music sound, you know, with some of the Eastern aesthetics. Of course you have the piano and the and the jazzy feels. Uh the little bit of music we listen to of hers. Would you uh consider that something that is appropriate for the concert hall? Well of course you would consider it something that's appropriate for the concert hall. Would it be something that you think will be challenging for the typical infrastructure or the tif- typical radio listener, concert hall? Well, listener that's, to, to that's, hear that sort of mix of aesthetics.
2: That's that's really painting with a broad brush, um, because I know I want to give some of our listeners credit because they're more open of course, to yeah. hearing that than than others are. Um, so, you know, I'm going I'm going to say that there's a. Maybe thirty <laughs> percent of them are open to it and ravenous for it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe another thirty percent will tolerate it long enough in the program, and then there'll <laughs> be another that hate it, I guess yeah yeah when we
0: when we talk about uh, women's history and you know just the overarching patriarchy, I think it's. I think the story of Alice Coltrane is a, a prime example of how we will focus on the men. How Alice was always the wife of John, but had this deep depth of music and, and mm-hmm. art that didn't make it to, to my to my music history course. and into, into, into my textbook. Um, I'll I'll put a link. In the description, uh, with more about Alice Coltrane. Uh, I'm I'm learning along with y'all here. I've gone through several of her tracks today, Scott. A lot of uh, tracks, uh, sort of her version of some of the famous Coltrane tunes, including um, a, love, what, what, a love, a love, supreme. a love supreme. Yeah, that we talked about um, uh, a few weeks ago. But again, I wanted to share Galaxy and Danda. I just like the intergalactic feel of it. I like the freeness of it, and I just you know love how this is a corner. of of so-called classical music, music by a woman that we haven't always celebrated, but that we're learning more about now. So here's a little bit of that music here by the late, great Alice Coltrane. like I said, Alice Coltrane was brought up in my conversation with Courtney Bryan, the uh, newly announced artistic partner with the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra down in New Orleans. Courtney Bryan has done all sorts of work every day, uh, everywhere. She has a, a, a piece of music called Bless It uh, on the Opera Philadelphia channel right now. We've talked about the Opera Philadelphia channel. Um, she has uh, a violin concerto that is digitally premiering uh, this Friday as we're recording this. Uh, is called Syzygy. We talk a little bit about that, Um, a new commission featuring Jennifer Coe. We've talked about Jennifer Mm -hmm. Coe and Mm -hmm. um, uh, another important woman in uh, new music and uh, classical music. Courtney Bryan uh, spent many years in many places around the country, um, but is actually from New Orleans. So this is a homecoming for her. And one of the things that we talk about was what is it like to come back to New Orleans as someone who's from there, but someone who's new, someone who's been gone for, for so long. I'm sure going back to Omaha today even for you being gone for what 15 years yep. is 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 going to feel different you know It feels like that sweater that you used to love but it doesn't fit anymore Exactly and and Scott something that I think that you could appreciate is that for many of us you know even folks my age you've been gone from your hometown for 15 years so have we you know just you know, in a, in, a, in a different way. So right. you know that 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 time is there. So um, anyway, we we talk about those and so many other things. I want to shout out Scott Harrison from the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra uh, for for getting this collaboration squared away. Thank you so much um, for your help. As we transition into my conversation with Courtney Bryan, I wanted to share a tune called a tune of hers called Generation Y. We talk a lot about what new generations bring. How my generation, millennials, Generation Y, we didn't reinvent the wheel. We didn't bring these uh conversations of racial equity to the concert hall but we're continuing them so mm-hmm. th- that's where uh, Courtney and I uh, begin our conversation what has our generation brought to the discourse of racial equity gender equity and classical music so here's a little bit of Courtney Bryan's composition Generation Y to get us into our conversation for this week
3: Recorded that piece back in um, in 2004 and um, so I was just graduating from Oberlin um, at that time and I was living in Detroit studying with a teacher of mine Marcus Belgrave and so he was really like training me on becoming like a professional musician like doing gigs in Detroit and mm-hmm. and just getting that kind of experience outside of school and um, I mean i would had some of that growing up in New Orleans but It was just another, it was a a separate mentorship with Marcus Belgrave. And at the end of that time in Detroit, that summer, I wanted to record just kind of as a document for myself of having this great experience, like being with him, all the musicians that I met out there. So I went to the studio and it started there. But then I decided after that, oh, actually, I want to turn this into an album. Mm -hmm. And so then some of my um, friends and colleagues from Oberlin, um, Casa Overall, Drums, and percussionist, Ben Malament, and then a bass player, Ben Williams, who I met him when he was a student still at Michigan when that, that summer in Detroit. Um, we gathered and did some more music. So that was one of the pieces. And then I wrote it specifically, like we're all of that same generation. And I was just kind of, it was kind of a celebration of like us as a generation, kind of finding our own voice and doing our own projects. And so, so it goes back to that time of my life, like straight out of college, um, yeah, what so a, that's, that's, that's where I was of. thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know the world's right. But yeah, so I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think of how it relates. I mean, to our our generation, I mean, there's definitely things that we've added. And then there's things that at this time period, now that I'm 38, I'm, I'm really looking at the younger generation and seeing how they deal with different issues, how outspoken they are, how because of the generations that came before them they have a a language to speak on a lot of what's going on in our world. And it's such a very clear um, and, and knowledgeable way. And they're very bold about it. So I'm very inspired by the younger generation.
0: You're definitely right in describing millennials as bold and, and outspoken. Um, Feel free to, to pass over this question, but you know, the world, including this podcast has been talking about your alma mater, Oberlin. Do do you have any reaction (laughs) to their, to their recent, uh, bit of drama? <laughs>
3: <laughs> sure, I do. Actually, I was teaching, um, I teach a class at, I co-teach a class at Tulane uh, with my colleague Matt Sakakini and it's called Black Music, Black Lives. Mm-hmm. So the previous week before that flyer ha- happened on, um we talk about all kind of Black music, but that particular week, I was um, leading a focus on Black composers of the Western art tradition. However, you know, just kind of having a wider conversation about what that means, but they read a piece by Ollie Wilson on the black American composer that he wrote in the 1970s. And he, part of what he mentioned that, that the students really gravitated to was what it meant for him to write some fine music and music like that during the seventies and, and during this black power movement and what it means to create music and what the music's supposed to say as a black person. Mm-hmm. So they really gravitated to that aspect of the, of the piece at, uh, from Ollie Wilson. But also I had them read George Lewis's um, what he wrote in the New York Times a few months ago just to get some listening examples of a variety of types of composers. And so he's um, had a list of composers going from Blind Tom, William Grant Still to uh, Natalie Josham. And I was on the list as well. And um, Machina Roberts and Elvin Singleton, Tanya Leon. Mm-hmm. So, it, so his article just kind of gave an idea of how wide that category mm-hmm. is of when you say a black composer, you listen, you know? So anyway, we had a whole week of that. And then I saw the flyer online. Um, first of all, I want to say I love my alma mater. And so uh, with Oberlin, I really do. Um, I really admire the history too, like us being the first, like whenever you look at black composers, like William Grant still went to Oberlin and right. I forget the whole list, but and like
0: Daniel death, a lot of people.
3: Yeah. Aren't they? Yeah. So there's that history there. Um, at the same time, I mean, it was a bad flyer. <laughs> it was badly designed flyer for what it was trying to communicate. But someone sent me the flyer, a friend of mine, um, and I didn't know to be upset. I was actually just excited because I saw what the programming was. Mm-hmm. I saw that it was Les Chevalier de saint George. It was William Brett Steele who went to Oberlin and Jeffrey Mumford who was my teacher at Oberlin. Mm-hmm. So I saw that it was very thoughtfully planned out. Like it was black composers, but also two of them had direct ties with Oberlin. And of course the flyer was, it was badly designed, but I actually wasn't as upset about it as some people were. I just thought that it could have been designed better.
0: Yeah, the internet loves to be upset. (laughs) So like so many musicians uh, especially of our generation leaving home is just a part of the trajectory whether it's going to school or, or finding a job you have made it back to your hometown I'm I'm sure you're thrilled to, to, to be back home.
3: Yeah I mean it's hard to know how that things can line up that way I remember being on the job market actually for a couple of years and and things not landing and then the, the first job I got was at home. So yeah. So that was pretty amazing. Um and it's great to be home. My whole family's here. I grew up in New Orleans, as you, I mean, you mentioned. mean to mention. Um I grew up in New Orleans. I was at Oberlin. and then I went to records and study with Stanley Cowell. So I was in New Jersey. And then for eleven years I was between the New Jersey and New York, even as I was at, a student at Columbia. I played for a church in Newark. So I was always both in New Jersey and New York and that really became a big part of my Like, so going back home to New Orleans has been an interesting experience as an adult because I can see and hear things differently than when I was growing up. And it's been like kind of relearning the city all over again. It's such a mag- It's such an amazing place, New Orleans. It's it's you kind of time travel while
0: you're here. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting <laughs> that you talk about that new perspective because the older I get, the more fascinated I am with New Orleans. I've heard people call it the last American city. I haven't been to Mardi Gras. I've I've been to uh, to Southern Decadence, which I I would say is, oh, is nice. similar in <laughs> in, uh, in in many regards. But you know, the picture that many of us who are not from New Orleans has to be different than your picture of new orleans being being a native what what is in the gumbo down there that most of <laughs> us just don't really know about
3: yeah thanks for asking that because you're there's a lot when people visit there's a lot to enjoy and then of course we have this really rich culture and then we've we found a way to kind of like package it and share it yep. <laughs> with those in <laughs> a sort of way but it's still authentically the, the living culture like it's not like a it's not like we've turned into Disney world or Mm -hmm. something, you know, it's like, it's still a real culture, but, but yeah, there's a lot of things about like being from new Orleans that, um, I guess my new Orleans, I thought about this a lot when the show Treme was out on HBO, Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of parts of new Orleans and they all seemed very authentic to me. And I could tell that they had consulted with the right people, (laughs) you know, um, but there's a part of the world that I came out of that I find is important to the decisions I make. And that's just, um, like my mother was, uh, is a retired, my mother is a retired, uh, professor from Xavier university. And so a lot of my, um, childhood was going to different things on college campuses, like, um, different plays and events and going to book talks and stuff. So there's the academic side and then there's my father's side. He was, um, my father's a retired lawyer, and he um, was very involved in a lot of the local politics. Mm-hmm. And so I find that my gravitation towards some of the work I do around my compositions is, is kind of related to some of the things I was around with that. So I feel like my New Orleans is really coming out those things. But musically, I mean, I was exposed to everything. And in particular, I mean, I was... I was um, I had a teacher, Daniel Wildbacker, who was my uh, piano teacher classical piano. And I was very involved in a lot of like the piano, comp- the international piano festival mm-hmm. that would happen every year in that community. And then I was, um, and then I was part of this camp called the Louis Satchville Armstrong Summer Jazz Camp. And that's where I met a lot of the musicians who I still work with. And that's where I met the teachers who really influence the way I think about music a lot. Um, and those are people like Kid Jordan and, Clyde Kerr Jr. and Alvin Baptiste and Jermaine Basil and this whole collection of artists who um, are great artists and great educators. Like they take ed- being an educator as seriously as as their art yeah. and they're, they're very equal. So I grew up in that community and the thing I think that's lesser known about New Orleans is within that community, just this whole history of very experimental music mm. Um. And talking about from like the 80s and 90s experimental, so of course Louis Armstrong was experimental music
0: for that time. You know, that,
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah, that time. And so we know we hear a lot about that time period, but um, but there's this whole tradition like thinking about Kid Jordan and this experimental music that was happening that was very related to what was going on in Chicago at that time. And so that's a very lesser known part of New Orleans, but that's a very key part to me and the, the music that I've gravitated
0: towards. Yeah, when you talk about experimental music, I think about the birth of bounce. I think about Manny oh, yeah. Fresh and Big Freedom. and big that's certain, and those you people, right. You know? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's 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 really true. interesting to see. Um as as much as we love so called experimental music <laughs> Uh, the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra has always been a part of that community and maybe not so much on the experimental music side of things, but maybe on a different side. What what role did the LPO play for you as a child, as a little girl in New Orleans?
3: Yeah, so LPO is the first orchestra I ever heard. And so of course it left a very lasting impression. Um, I enjoyed the, the, the times I got to see it as a child. And one time really stuck out to me and I always mention it to the folks at LPO. When I was a child, I went to a concert by the LPO with my parents and they had a feature, they were featuring a composition by Hannibal Lacumbe called African Portraits. And so the whole concert was his work and it was, um, and it drew from all kinds of styles. Well, first of all, it was my first time seeing a black composer on stage, like in that context, like with with an orchestra. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but then also he was drawing from gospel and jazz and classical and all these different things. And all of that was a part of his music. So it was great to meet him. And then also uh, soon after that, I started studying with Roger Dickerson, who's a major uh, um, black composer and also educator from New Orleans. And I started studying with him. And he's the first person who told me about this um, tradition of, of black composers mm-hmm. really, with Florence Price and and Margaret Bonds and others. So um Back to LPO, that was my memory of LPO. Um, I'm sure they programmed a lot of other music that were more of the standard, you know, older music, but that was like a very important memory for me as a child, seeing that. Um, And then of course, as an adult coming back home, I have a different appreciation. um, Before I started working with them, this became like one of my favorite things to do, like for fun, like when I'm not teaching, I would, um, my parents and I would go to the LPO concerts together and just kind of enjoy it just be like a fan of the, you know, the musicians. And I really enjoyed the LPO. Like they, just the feel of the music, like it's, um, and I enjoy the way Carlos Miguel Prieto, uh conducts like his interpretation of music and all the musicians. So anyway, that's something I've done for fun before we started actually working together. So it's Mm -hmm. been like different stages and different views of LPO. Yeah.
0: And of course, fast forward, you're now working with the LPO, your memory, your picture of the orchestra, you know, being the uh, vehicle for Black uh, composers and Black music. If we're going to be honest, that's not everyone's picture of what an orchestra is. I would imagine uh, certainly not for Black folks down in New Orleans. How does that inform this collaboration how are you convincing you know the little girl that you were uh years ago that yes this is an organization that also promotes black music
3: mm-hmm. yeah so i mean even though i had that that particular experience i mean i don't know if it was like so much like i define them as an organization that promotes black music but it was an important part of my memory of course it meant a lot but i think that there it sounds like what's going on now is they really are making a a they have been programming more and more diverse music. Like as I was going to these concerts, I was enjoying like the diversity on the programming, Um, but they're making an even more of a push to have diverse, but also more and more living composers uh, of various styles, various identities, you know? uh, um, And that's something that I guess in my work with them, like as creative partner, part of it, it comes in different parts. Um, So part of it is doing, the music itself and, and just kind of, um, being in discussion, you know, with the team, with the creative team about like, who's doing what kind of music out here? Like, what are some of the things to consider? Um, and just kind of being part of those conversations. Um, another part is then programming my music and, um, and then commissioning a piece that I'm going to write by the end of this three-year term. That's, that's going to be a response to a whatever we've been doing together like it's response to the city but also I really want to make it like out of the different conversations we've had over the years and the community and programs um and that leads to the, some of the programs that we, that have already started with them are the educational ones so we're working with kids in the schools and it's building off a program they already have called music for life and so um and and I have this program that I did when I was composing in residence with Jacksonville Symphony, where I started a program called Sounds of Your Neighborhood. So I go to different schools and um, and we work on them collecting, creating sounds of their neighborhood, just using their voice or any body percussion or if they wanted their instrument. We kind of brought the instruments in later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to take those sounds and then learn how to create music and how to improvise, how to compose and just talk about the words as they did it. And then what they created, I ended up um, using the inspiration in the piece that I wrote for Jacksonville. So that's like a project I did. So I'm kind of bringing that same approach to what's already set up with LPO. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to see where that grows from there. And as far as community initiatives, we're still, you know, we're still discussing that because um, I guess the whole key thing for me, whenever we say in communities, is that we are part of a community. Mm -hmm. So sometimes organizations, discuss community as something that is you know something you think about after the fact of your planning sure. but something that we're trying to do together is the planning is starting as we're part of this community it's new orleans but it's also louisiana in general and of course it's the the world i mean the the program we do is open for the whole world to participate in but we're really celebrating what our culture is here or our culture and um, so we're trying to start from that place. And so I really like that approach because we are part of a community. So um, so we're just still seeing where that goes. So I, I'll be able to speak more about that. Sure, sure.
0: <laughs> and as I think about community, you know, neighborhoods, culture, as it applies to New Orleans, physical and social distance seems to not mm-hmm. really run parallel with that. How, how has COVID impacted the way you see community and your work down there in New Orleans?
3: Yeah, I mean, it does create a barrier. It's like as much as Zoom creates opportunities, it also, I mean, not just Zoom, but social distance and um, forget, Zoom is a company. I feel like it's just yep. a way of life.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: at this point.
3: <laughs> yeah. But um, like, for example, the Music for Life programs are all over Zoom. So it, it makes it um, easy to just pick a time, I guess. And, you know, as long as people, as long as the kids are able to join um, the way they do for school, we, we do everything over Zoom right now. Um, it makes kind of finding out what to do harder with social distancing. I feel like in in a pre-COVID time, I probably would just be making visits here and there and talking with people more. And a lot for me in my in my career and in my life has happened just from being places and talking with people and spending time and maybe like having a meal together or, you know, things like that. So with that part being gone, it's, it's like everything is happening here. Like, I'm thinking, like, what exists, or, you know, and that, that whole just being places part and just finding out stuff from being here, being there and talking with this person and meeting this person is it's not there. So that part, you know, I, I miss that and, and look forward to when we can do that again safely. But I guess we're doing the best we can.
0: Yeah, I bet you in a lot of those conversations you have with your colleagues at uh, LPO, there are folks who, unlike you, are not from New Orleans. Do do you find Mm. do you find yourself being a a, a sort of cultural ambassador in that way for folks who work for the organization who may not you know really have or be as familiar with the juice as you are?
3: (laughs) That's a good question. You know, that's something I've been coming to terms with and moving back home. Is that yes, I am from New Orleans, and I have this connection to New Orleans in a certain way, like what neighborhoods sort of. Symbolized to people or like what areas feel like a neutral space where people would gather versus this is this area where I don't feel welcome or do but also my memories are from my childhood in the 80s and 90s and then things have changed so much since I've been away so I come back home and I have these memories and I feel very authentically from New Orleans but I'm also spending a lot of time relearning New Orleans like so much has changed after Katrina in the first place. Like all of the schools have changed, and we really define things in New Orleans by like, what school did you go to and like mm-hmm. what neighborhood, like what ward are you from and what school. And and a lot of that, but a lot of that's just new. And also, there's been a lot of different folks who have moved in and who have made New Orleans home and are very involved in a lot of the defining um, decisions in New Orleans, which I think is positive. I don't, I don't see that as a bad thing, um, but So the whole idea of who's from New Orleans and who knows New Orleans is a little complicated for me, but one thing that is very uh, important to me being from here is how much I care about New Orleans. So even if I'm relearning my city, there's a lot of things that I really care about and I care about New Orleans being, um, seen for what it is versus what is always displayed. Maybe, um, on movies and, and TV shows, you know, so just kind of getting into who are the people in New Orleans and what really matters to yeah. the people in New
0: Orleans. I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't even think about Katrina and, and, and that mm. history. That just didn't come to mind. I'm, I'm remembering back in those days, I was still an undergraduate down in Memphis, and there were a lot mm. of people who came up from New Orleans, especially students, um, because of everything that was going on. And um, now that I'm thinking about it, you know, I have a memory of this one- uh, I wish I could remember her name, but uh, she was going to um, a school down in New Orleans uh, was in our dorms because, you know, they moved a lot of the students up and was really, you know, really spent uh, the evenings, you know, those late evenings in the common areas of dorms, you know, talking about pro-Blackness and what we need to do for for each other. Um, yeah, what your mentioning Katrina has brought back so many memories. I, I wonder if uh, if there are any specific memories for you in relation to Katrina, because you I, I imagine you weren't in New Orleans at the time, right?
3: I left a week before.
0: Wow. So Look at I God. was
3: planning. So, yeah, you mentioned you were in school. Yeah, I was Um, I was just starting. So I mentioned that year where I was Um, after and I took a year off from school and I had a chance to be like a full time musician mm-hmm. and try like I mentioned Detroit. But then I came home to New Orleans and I was um, doing gigs and practicing my my skills as a band leader. It was a really exciting time. But I also was ready to go back to school. So so I went um, to, that's when I started Rutgers um, the next year. I was working with Stanley Cowell and my sister and I started driving there. It was actually the week before Katrina hit. We had no idea. And as soon as we arrived in New Brunswick, New Jersey, we started hearing things on the news. And then, um, yeah, so it went from there. So I actually moved right before, but I saw what was happening to my city. Over the TV and, you know, as we all were watching it together, I was watching it from away and I was in touch with my parents at first, but there was this period of time where the phones didn't work from that area. So I knew that they had evacuated, but it took a while to find out where they had evacuated to Mm -hmm. and how that worked out. So a lot of us, yeah, that many of us always, people don't say the word Katrina too much in New Orleans. They either say before the storm, after the storm, or they say pre-K, post-K. But it really defined a lot. Like there was that tragedy that happened, but then there was also um, all the changes that happened afterwards, like developers coming in and building things and the schools changed. I mean, there were just so many like it was just sort of abrupt changes in like how things worked in the city after that point. So it's still like a lot to catch up to, like um, moving back like
0: some years later. Yeah. So when it comes to, um, I'll I'll use your uh, uh, vocabulary, uh, pre-K, post-K, you know, I'm sure the storm just put a lot of people's priorities in different spaces, especially when it comes Mm -hmm. to what we should aspire to be, what sort of work is sustainable, you know, going back to the uh, community programs that you're, um, doing in conjunction with the Louisiana Philharmonic, how do you convince the child or maybe more important, the parent that music is something that can be of use to them, even if they aren't looking to grow up and become a professional musician?
3: Mm -hmm. I'm glad you asked that because that reminds me it's important to let them know that, you know, that, um, I always feel because I've taught young people a lot, um, especially when I was when I was in grad school at Rutgers, I taught piano lessons at a community music school. And it was all kind of ages, but, but starting from five. And I just really want to make sure they enjoyed the music
1: mm-hmm.
3: because some some parents brought them there because they enjoyed piano and they have fun, you know, and I, I still had them at a certain standard so that they're progressing, but not the pressure of like you making a career in this. Um, And then there were some parents, a few parents who wanted their child to become the next star, wanted them to become a star by age seven, you know? And so I wasn't the best teacher for that because (laughs) because my whole memory of learning music as a young person was just how fun it was. Mm -hmm. Like, I wanted to be at the piano and I wanted to create music and just like record stuff and try stuff out and be messy with it just try stuff out not worry about where it was going so for me working with young people I feel like it's important first of all for them to enjoy it but then to teach them things along the way just like they have in school you know like there's certain things you learn and and of course, any of us who play music know that the discipline part is a key part of being able to enjoy it. Like the, right. the discipline isn't fun itself. I mean, they're having to practice like for a certain amount of time. But um, but then over time, you get to have fun because you spent you learn what it is to have that discipline, to learn an instrument, to learn how to create Um so, I mean, in these programs, it's it's we're not really, like, the, there are uh, programs through LPO where they have musicians from the orchestra that are teaching private lessons and are doing that sort of work and training young people. And these programs that we're doing is more just kind of, like, my main goal is for young people to know they can create. So that's, like, the overall goal. And I use the word create because I don't want to get into the words of improvisation and composition yet, right. you know, because uh, they get very loaded. but just to know you can create, so you don't have to wait until you've learned an instrument for 20 years and say, now you're ready to start composing. It's like, no, actually, if you have an imagination, if you have, like, you know, even just with your voice, that's why I emphasize just with your voice and any body percussion you can create. And then, of course, once you have an instrument in your hand, you can do that much more with it. Or if you have, like, computer access and you can do things on your, uh, on like, a digital workstation. So whatever people have access to. And, of course, you know, it's better... If we could figure out how more kids could have more access to all of these things, you know. Um, but that, that's my main goal with this program. it's it's kind of driving that home.
0: And then I'm sure that for so many young people, seeing your imagination realized in pieces of music Mm -hmm. as performed by the LPO is inspiring as well. We're going to talk about uh, your violin concerto, Syzygy, here in a second. Uh, But before we get there, you know, when I'm looking at what's uh, also on the program for the uh, premiere of this violin concerto, there is a bit of the canon. I, I, I saw the name Aaron Copeland there. My critique is always that we don't actually need the canon. Why can't we really center new music, black music, and leave the canon behind? What What are your opinions on that? Do we Do we need the canon?
3: That's a good question. I mean, it's good to have these conversations. And I, by the way, I appreciate following you on Twitter because uh, I've been learning <laughs> a lot about. <laughs> I've been learning a lot about what the conversations are. You know that people are having. Um. To, to answer that question, because I've been thinking about this, mm-hmm. um, first of all, i like to highlight the orchestras and, and ensembles in general that are doing that work, so like American Composers Orchestra, the fact that they focus on American composers, but for the most part, every concert I remember going to them, it was always living composers, so living American composers, and always quite diverse, like there's always a like a mix of gender and race and location in the country where people were from I think they were working on you know even expanding that further but um American Composers Orchestra is where I started writing for orchestra so they commissioned me and I felt like you know that was they gave me my first chance and then from there it kind of it kind of builds into these other commissions um, and then there's groups like the the Dream Unfinished and mm-hmm. Activist Orchestra and so orchestras like that that um start off with a very specific goal and they really champion living composers and and focusing on diversity, inclusion, equity. And and in that case, uh, the performers as well. So just like Dream Unfinished is a very unique, you know, organization. Um and another ensemble that I work with, International Contemporary Ensemble.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, they're you know, they're at the most cutting edge of cutting oh, edge. Yeah. So. <laughs> So yeah, they're they very cutting edges ensemble and I I include them in orchestra just because of how large their ensemble is and how they do chamber orchestra pieces and they do opera and different things, but they really are, you know, focusing on diversity. I mentioned race and yeah, race and gender, but just all kind of whatever the landscape of people who are composing music, you know. So there are organizations doing that, just to mention that. I feel, um, and then of course there are orchestras who are maybe only focusing on a canon that is primarily European. Right. And maybe occasionally Aaron Copland or um, who are the other Americans is Bernstein, they love Bernstein. <laughs> Bernstein, <Yeah. laughs> So, you know, so there are, I'm sure, orchestras who do the canon of European music from before a certain time and then a few uh, American composers. And then there's orchestras that are in between that. And I feel like it's okay. I mean, I actually, my thing is, um, I really believe in expanding a canon versus like saying we need to do away with a canon. And part of that is just the music itself. Like, first of all, I get the reason why. I think that things are imbalanced. Yeah. So there's an imbalance where, and, and we learn that in when we go to music schools too, where they say, first you have to learn this music, then in your spare time, you can learn all this other music that's like, (laughs) like focus on this 10% and then learn 90% on your own time. So I think that way of approaching kind of sets things up to be in balance. But at the same time, there's a lot of great material in the canon that I wouldn't want to throw away. Like um, what made me want to write for orchestra. I mean, I mentioned that example of Pablo Kumbe, but even before that, uh, one thing that made me want to write for orchestra was hearing Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. Mm -hmm. And I remember just like listening to it on repeat all the time in high school. And I just knew that one day I wanted to write um, a piece of that size and write for orchestra and just listen to how the instrument, like, I wanted to write for that group of instruments, you know, so it wasn't so much about classical music versus that. It was just like, I heard the sound and I wanted to do something like that. So my question for, I guess, majority of orchestras is how could things be balanced? Like, how can you kind of make it equal. Like, it's, to me, it's not about doing away with the canon. And it's also not about, like, doing status quo, but how do you mix things up so that you get a diverse voice and that you can really kind of see things together. Like, I, I love when I hear a new composer alongside Brahms or um, or just mixing it up, you know. So that that's kind of my approach is more like not doing away with, but diversifying in a very... Thoughtful
0: way. Mm-hmm. And I think you make a good point when you talk about a diversity of voices. Sometimes we take for granted that it's not only about seeing the name of a woman or the name of a black person on a program, but the the actual spirit and the perspective of the music. Uh, with that in mind, uh talk a little bit about the voice of Syzygy. first of all, what what inspired that title?
3: <laughs> okay, so this is gonna be a longer story. I'm just talking circles. It started with the conversations with Jennifer Cohen. I do want to talk about Jennifer mm-hmm. Cole. Um Jennifer Cohen and I met at Ojai Music Festival when she was premiering uh, Vijay Ayer's concerto Trouble mm-hmm. that he wrote for her. So I met her in that context um, and it was exciting. We were just talking as you know, musicians and stuff. And later she was letting me know about We we kept in touch. And in fact, when I had my premiere with Jacksonville Symphony, the piece I ended up writing that I was describing she was there performing Prokofiev uh, Violet Concerto. One of the, uh, I forget which one, but it was Prokofiev Violet Concerto. And um, we were on the same program there. And by then we had already talked about how we wanted to work together. So she told me more about her Arco Collective and how she commissions these new works. And I got a chance to check out like the different pieces that she had been premiering. And just was really amazed at the diversity. I mean, the, the different types of music and just like how many, <laughs> too. Yeah. Um, so it started there. And then and then she said, okay, we have a, a chance to write for Chicago Sinfayetta. And we talked about inspiration. Um, she said it would be nice if we could do something that celebrated women in some way. So it started from there. It started from us knowing we were working together, I was writing for her, Chicago Sinfayetta, and then we decided to celebrate women. So a lot of my inspiration comes from literature, poetry, and um, I was like, well, how about this time? And both of my sisters are visual artists um, and we we had just finished doing a, pro- a collaboration together. We've been talking about many years that we wanted to do So We finally did one. So I was like, well, how about inspiration from women artists? Yeah. And so instead of me thinking about like how they were connected, I just thought I wanted to do a piece in three movements. So kind of st- sticking with the traditional form of the violin concerto. And I wanted each movement to be inspired by a different woman artist. So I picked three that I was interested in. um, Painter Alma Thomas, uh, painter Frida Kahlo, and architect and and artist Maya Lin. So I started there and then I was like, okay, great, I'm excited about these three artists. Then I was like, oh, what do they have in common? (laughs) So that was the whole thing. And, And the output of work is so much that it could go in any direction. So one thing I started with was Alma Thomas has a painting called The Eclipse. And I was really fascinated with that painting. And I just heard music when I looked at that painting. Hmm. So I started with Elma Thomas' The Eclipse. And I started looking at the titles of the different artists' work. And I saw that Maya Lin had a piece called Eclipse Time, which is an installation in New York Penn Station. And it's one that I had walked under twice a week, every week for, like many, for many years without knowing it was there. And so that was fascinating to me personally. I'm like, wait a minute, it's near the McDonald's? Like, it's, wow, <laughs> I wow. saw where it was. And so like I was really fascinated to learn more about this piece, which was fascinating. So by then I had this theme of eclipse and then I was looking at Frida Kahlo's work and even though I didn't see um, a painting with the title of eclipse, I, I saw a painting called Tree of Hope Keep Firm and it was with sun and moon. And I guess a lot of her work has sun and moon and different planetary mm-hmm. inspiration. Uh, but this piece in particular was the one. I was like, oh, this is the painting. And so I picked that one. And in fact, musically, I started with that painting. Like, I started having musical ideas to that painting. And then from there, I started thinking about, I started looking up the eclipse. I was like, okay, I picked this. And I'm like, thinking about the art, and thinking about what's in common, women artists. Then I was like, I need to learn more about eclipse because I never really, like, paid that much attention. I hear, like, when there's an announcement of an eclipse happening, sure. and I usually miss it. So... <laughs> But um, I looked up eclipse and then as I was uh, researching, just like trying to understand more about eclipses, I um, came upon the word syzygy, Mm. which means when it's a rare occurrence when three planetary objects are in alignment at the same time. And so I was like, okay, (laughs) so that's, that's the word. So, you know, related to the three artists and just this alignment. And then from there, it was, you know deciding how to come up with music themes that really, like, related to the idea of um, eclipse. And for the most part, I narrowed it down to this idea of darkness and lightness. I like the idea of darkness and lightness. And I kept having this image of flying towards the sun. Mm. So those, those, it kind of like, it started from here, 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 here. And then it kind of, like, Condensed into darkness, lightness flying towards the sun, and that's that's where the material
0: comes from. It's amazing how music can be the pathway to so much more than music. I thought uh, Syzygy might have been, you know, a name that my sister might choose for one of her kids, you know, uh, in, oh. in the future, you know, <laughs> like some, some, yeah. something sort of uh, composed. I'll say not made up, but uh, but but mm-hmm. but it's an actual thing that that's exciting to to to, to learn about. That I'll have to uh, <laughs> uh, look up Elma Thomas and, and, and really yeah. take in take in those works uh but before i ask you to um sort of give us our outro your your vision on the sound of uh new orleans in your future how can folks uh find out more about you uh uh, check out some of your upcoming lpo performances and everything else
3: okay thanks for asking that well next week um march 12th there's going to be an online premiere of the of syzygy with with Jennifer Cole, mm-hmm. um, she traveled to New Orleans during this time, which was I really appreciate that she did that. Um, she traveled here and recorded with uh, with the LPO musicians, and um, so there's going to be a video premiere of that next Friday, March 12th at, um, and you can find information on the LPO website, LPOMusic.org, and <laughs> and um and I have a website, CourtneyBryan.com. So I'm working on updating that. Um, I also am on social media, on Instagram and Twitter with a uh, username Z. Oh, uh, not Z. Who am I talking about? <laughs> C. Brian Music. So I, I really update there a lot. But yeah, my website. And in fact, even tonight, there's going to be... Um, or for those who see this after, um, there's going to be online on Oberlin's website a a new performance of my piece, Sanctum. So it's it's different things happening with online premieres, but I'll, I'll definitely update on my website on social media and then the LPO, please visit
0: uh, org. And again, shout out to Oberlin. We all fall down as long as we get back up. <laughs> <laughs> so when you uh, when you go out into that beautifully muggy, humid weather of New Orleans <laughs> to go run your errands or do whatever you're doing, what's in your earbuds? What, what's on, what, what, what music is on in the car?
3: I listen to everything. And people always get surprised when I say what I listen to the most, but one of my favorite musicians is Rihanna. So I love to listen to Rihanna, and I know it's been—I know she's been on her various ventures in the past few years. I yeah, she's her. underwear. She's
0: not making music.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I know she, she's she's like she cannot be limited, and I I really respect it. So yeah, I also I also um am a Fenty fan, like Fenty Beauty. But yeah, so I um I really like Rihanna's music. I listen to everything. I mean, I, I it kind of depends on the day. Sometimes I'm listening to Alice Coltrane
1: mm-hmm. when
3: I'm. When I'm going about the world, but I actually have to listen to her music carefully because it can transport you. And I, <laughs> I try not to listen to that while driving. I listen to that when I'm meditating. I'm Alice Coltrane, but yeah, I listen to everything. So I just, um, I just love music, and I, and I like to listen to things that I just like to listen to things that make me feel or think differently.
0: Diamonds by Rihanna to get us out of the conversation since we were talking about gems earlier. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Diamonds by Rihanna. Scott, my favorite performance of that tune, and you—you might—you might giggle when I when I tell you this. One of my favorite things to do back in my previous life as a bartender and all that stuff was to watch the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show. But of course there is nothing every bartender's dream. There is nothing arousing for me about it. I just love turning all of the TVs in the bar to that, to look at the beautiful fashion, to see women really, you know, empowering themselves and and going out there, but also to see the musical performances. The the big fashion show always had performances and one year Rihanna performed at the Victoria Secret fashion. So uh, Diamonds was one of the tunes she mm. performed. Incredible song written by Sia. If you didn't know that, you know, I but didn't. shout out to uh, another uh, woman musician. Uh, huge. Thanks again to Courtney Bryan. Uh, more information on her again, in the description of this opus. And I hope that you will check out her composition, Syzygy, um, on the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra's uh, website and on their stream. I'll have information um, about that in the description. Scott, before we got into the triloquy, um, one thing I wanted to ask you that I was thinking about in my conversation with Courtney Bryan, so we talked about how she's come, how she came back to New Orleans and is basically talking to little kids that represent, in a way, the little girl that she once was and, you know, mm-hmm. what was her relationship mm-hmm. with the, uh, uh, the Louisiana Philharmonic. So when you were a kid in Omaha... What when you think back? What was your relationship with the uh, with the Omaha Symphony? Did you feel engaged by the Omaha Symphony as a I don't know ten year old, twelve year old? No.
2: Keep in mind though that I was in a uh, like a one ring out from the city suburb, and g- growing up, we didn't have uh, a lot of money to be put towards yeah. a. A, a symphony ticket my mom and, my mom and dad were not symphony goers in fact at the first classical station i worked at my mom listened and she said those things are so long i didn't know when you were going to talk again i couldn't wait and they didn't like classical mm-hmm. my mother or father so and let's so let's say so, the, my, oh, so my my experience was through public school when uh ballet omaha would do the nutcracker sure. you know, we get a field trip uh, we get Family day at the Joslin Art Museum, and we'd get a special, you know, hour long concert, you know, with the Omaha Symphony for some reason. So it was through school, Mm -hmm. field trips. So you are today given some big fancy job with
0: the Omaha Symphony as an Omaha native Mm -hmm. to sort of engage more of the local culture. How would you have engaged your parents and your little boy? self to, you know, come and hear the symphony. What 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 are some of the ideas that you would suggest to the management there to rope in more of the natives, more of the folks like you and, and your family growing up?
2: First off, I have to say that just because I'm starting to talk about the Latin population does not mean that I wouldn't be engaging the black population. Of or course, of, those of course, of course. But stockyards were huge. In Omaha, and a lot of Mexican families moved up to work in the packing houses, in the slaughterhouses, Mm -hmm. and they made their own community. So the 24th and Q area in Omaha is nothing but Latin shops and businesses and restaurants. Um, It's a self it's it's a self sustaining little economic base there. They they have a great neighborhood and I love going through there and I would love to go and hear an outdoor concert perhaps in a South Omaha you know shut down the street let's have a yeah let's have a block party and let's bring in let's play music by Granados and uh uh, South American and Portuguese and let's 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 put together a program of that spicy salsa s- sound. Or know? maybe
0: even their music, you know, as Quanis Floyd, friend of the show, has said, you can't bring art to a community because these communities have art. You just have to find out what it is. Agreed. You know? So right. I'm, I'm sure there's some incredible music happening in, in that little neighborhood over mm-hmm. in
2: Omaha. That's the, that would be one of the... That just seems like a no-brainer to me. Yep. You know, it's, it, it's a huge community and, and it's great music. You would celebrate brown people, and there are others who don't. Let's get into the
0: triloquy. I had uh,
2: three conversations with my grandmother and two conversations with my father
0: um, before he stopped taking my calls. Trill number one, and not long, won't be here long. To go back to the Meghan Markle situation, I want to talk about Queen Elizabeth for a second. Is she or is she not the actual queen of actual England? She's the queen. Okay. But it's symbolic at this point. And is it, though? Is it symbolic? I feel like if Queen Elizabeth would have come forward and be like, look, y'all are on some bullshit. Stop all this racist nonsense, da da da, blah, 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 the people would have followed her because the people love the Queen of England. I was going to say something like that. that silence is just deafening Mm -hmm. to me. And Meghan Markle talks all all the time about how, oh, the Queen was never a problem and uh, tells a little story about how she keeps a blanket, uh, how the Queen keeps a blanket over her knees for warmth. But when Meghan Markle comes, she would invite Meghan under the the blanket as well. Okay, it is wonderful when white people are friendly to us, are nice to us, but when that accompliceship is missing when actual action isn't happening what what good is it what good is that a good innocent rapport between Meghan Markle and the Queen of England if the Queen isn't going to have her back they all the way over here trying to figure it out when you know you you have the Queen of England allegedly on your side I don't get it and I think it reminds me of what the arts institutions are doing and
2: everybody else you are right in that when years ago when i visited england i did not meet one single person over there that didn't have not anything but reverence for yeah. the royal family and that was generational you know that's, it's just this love for the lineage right yeah. and i think you're right i think that if she had spoken up that she could she very definite her her influence could have made things a lot easier for megan
0: i want to shout out at Simatawe. I'll I'll put her um, Instagram handle in the description of this. I stayed up, as I think I mentioned earlier, I stayed up real late on Clubhouse to wait for the English people to wake up to see what they had to say. Um, so this is a black woman who lives over there. And the point that she was making was all of the racism, all of the misogyny, all of the bigotry that we complain about here in America was invented. Over right, there, right? You know, and and when I think about the things that could change, if the right person in the right position of power would just step up, mm-hmm. um, it it disappoints me to see the perpetuation of these things through that silence, and this is how we've we've gotten where we are, and. I I know there are certain people who will want to chop off my head for saying anything ill about the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth II. But let's face it, she missed an opportunity. She missed an opportunity to publicly say something for this woman of color and didn't. So when when women of color are upset with white women about uh, only saying words and not doing any action, I think this is a royal example of that.
2: Well, keep in mind that they still have not made any sort of statement. Right. And, and
0: the they situation. probably won't. And they probably won't.
2: Well, there's a, another uh, point of privilege, no?
0: Well, speaking of privilege, triloquy number two, you know, <laughs> our, our government don't give a damn about us either. So um, last week, uh, Senate voted to not raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. First of all, do you remember what your first job paid?
2: Yeah, tips only.
0: Tips, so zero dollars an hour. And- <laughs> zero dollars an hour, and I was <laughs> and at the tips. I
2: was I was bagging groceries, and I was at the whim of the customer, whatever they wanted to give me for that work.
0: Do you remember your first official hourly wage? Yep. What was it?
2: Um, three something.
0: Yeah, like I, I think I was like four ninety or something at my first job. Yeah, I was washing at McDonald's, dishes. You know, I was washing dishes. And it's one thing to think about the teenager who's just you know at, at work after school or whatever, and oh, why does he deserve fifteen dollars an hour? But I think what a lot of these people and our royalty and our positions of power forget is that it's grown people with kids working two and three of these minimum wage jobs, right. Just trying to make ends meet, and folks in the Senate have the gall, the nerve to not do that. It, it seems like I, I tweeted, the Senate hates the American people. Change Convince my me mind. otherwise. Yeah, yeah change, change my mind. That, that's, that's what it feels like to me. I mean, what, what, is, what is your reaction to, to, I don't even know what to call it. I don't even have the words to just vote against someone being able to make it. I mean, what, 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 what you, what's your reaction to that?
2: You know that the Republican Party has lately been saying that they are the party of the middle class, that they are the party of the labor class. Yeah. How? Exactly. So we know what this is. Uh, Mitch McConnell beforehand said, "Obstruct, obstruct, obstruct. They will get nothing. So it doesn't matter if it will. They, they will cut off the nose despite the face, because." I believe that the problem is any sort of concession is looked at as weakness. If you lose any part of what you're going for, then you you totally lost and you need to own the libs or you need to own the conservatives or whatever. This is what governing is all about, is the compromise. And a compromise is something that you have when both parties are dissatisfied. So – that That is what we need. To, we need to be working together and, and making the concessions for the greater good. And it doesn't seem like the people that we have uh, elected right now are interested in doing that. And I'm saying
0: both sides. It's, it's, that, it's that male ego all through the chambers. There, there were some women. They were talking about um, cinema. 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 Uh, Senator Cinema. Mm-hmm. It's Women's History Month, so I suppose I won't drag her, but. <laughs> just leave a little space but but let let this have been october let this mm. i mean mm. so I'll, 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 I'll okay actually i will say this the queen elizabeth thing i was talking about you know position of power not taking the opportunity it's the same thing it's it's, it's the exact same thing
2: well you mean somebody needs to say something
0: some Someone who is not taking the opportunity to really advocate for people. And she's on the Democratic side, right? Right. Vote, well, vote she's no. a
2: moderate, though. Her and Manchin have uh, outsized power right now. So if, so if all these people
0: don't give a damn about uh, minimum wage for the, the common woman and the common man, do you think they actually give a damn about racial equity and orchestral music and choral <laughs> music and classical no. music? You know, that that's a conversation that they really don't care about. So, I mean... We 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 have to look beyond the so-called leadership. We we can't make that the parameters of what we can do. I think we have to look beyond it because they they aren't gonna do it. They 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 do not care about our livelihoods, much less the art we create. So I, I think we need to really figure out how we can do this for ourselves and really put something on the line. They aren't willing to put anything on the line, but we have to put something on the line for ourselves because no one else is. Final, final triloquy. Speaking of thing, p- things being put on the line, Scott, I, and, and earlier in this opus, we talked about naming the issue, right? right? I went back and forth as to whether or not I wanted to mention this. I cannot talk about the Queen of England not using her power, her platform. I can't talk about cinema. I can't talk about these other people not using their positions of power if if I'm not gonna name the thing and be trill, put, put trill in triloquy. Mm-hmm. So here we go. <laughs> I was asked a few months ago, I think actually back in November, to program a concert of chamber music for an organization that I will not name because I don't want them in the crossfires. But this organization asked me to compile a, a, a program. Uh, they gave me a date. They gave me a March date. So I was like, okay, so that's Women's History Month. So let me make sure that I put some women composers on the program. So I uh, did a little bit of the traditional. I had Samuel Barber's summer music. I did a, a, a Donzy Woodwind quintet. Mm-hmm. And then I had uh, Portraits of Josephine by uh, Valerie Coleman. And a piece of music to match the Barber, you know, barber summer music. Yeah. uh, I I joined that with Jennifer Higdon's Autumn Music. Cool. Okay? Cool. So the organization that I did this for uh, sent the program, sent only two of the pieces, actually, because it was going to be a split thing between uh, two ensembles. So sent two of the pieces, one of which being the Jennifer Higdon, to the principal musicians of the Minnesota Orchestra. Long story short... The word that got back to me was that the program was too difficult. They weren't sure if they could really do this top tier uh, by the time, so um, th- it fell apart with them. Uh, musicians at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra are going to do it instead. Shout out to Andrew Brady, uh, principal bassoon down there, one of the uh, one of the black leaders in orchestral music. I'm bringing this up to say this: there are many of us in positions where we can impact things like programming, where we can institute gender equity into our our own work. And there are folks who are not willing to play ball. Mm-hmm. These musicians considered it, uh, and I don't know if it's all of them, but Somebody over there considered it an inconvenience to really put in a little bit of equity, to put in a little extra work to make sure that this relatively unknown work by this woman composer has a platform. They didn't, they, they didn't do that. that. That was a little bit too much work for them. So the, 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 those musicians uh, will not be playing that. This is what... Go ahead.
2: So what you're saying is they didn't want to learn the Higdon?
0: Again, as I said, the word that got back to me was that the music was a little bit too difficult to be prepared to um, the standard in time. Now, also think hmm. about this, Scott. These are musicians, some of which, many of which are making six-figure salaries. I was going to say it's that's their ca- fucking job to that, practice and play this music.
2: They can do that, can
0: but, they? But, but apparently they couldn't. Listen, this is what the inequities we rail against look like in silence is how those equities, inequities rather survive. Like I said, I really tossed back and forth whether I wanted to name this issue one of the many little issues that I deal with mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur in the week, but we can't, we, we, we can't be silent. And I have to hold myself accountable. And that's what I'm doing here. Go listen to music by a living woman composer And reach out to her and thank her Because there are institutions out here That just will not play the music And will find any fucking reason Excuse my French Any reason to not give this music a platform As much as we want to talk about Oh, music by black composers Women, da, da, da Here y'all had the opportunity And y'all, you should have been over backwards To make sure it could happen Not just putting it on the same level as everything else Saying, oh, I don't know if it'll work with the schedule No, equity is making sure that it happens And if that means putting in a little extra work, doing a little bit more practice, so be it. After y'all go and listen to a piece of music by a living woman composer and go find her and thank her, ask your local ensemble why they aren't regularly performing music by women. Maybe there's an ensemble out there that is. I don't know every orchestra in every city throughout right, the country. Right, right. But I, I, I would guess that most of y'all aren't centering black music or music by women. So reach out to them and ask him, ask them why y'all aren't regularly performing music by women. Now, That is, of course, if you are interested in being complicit in the issue. If you don't care about the issue, if you don't care that these orchestras, these ensembles aren't showcasing music by women, remain silent. But for the rest of us, you know, make sure you do that. I'm speaking to every member of the royal family when I talk about silence is deadly. I'm talking about the Senate, how silence is deadly. And I'm talking about us. Women up and down the list need our allyship and need our accompliceship. And this is how we do it. See you next week.
1: Fuck is in French.